Today on Care Under Fire, I'm with former military psychologist Mark Matheson. I'm really pleased to have a psych on, finally, I've been looking for a little while, just to talk about practice in war and austere environments in general, and welcome to the podcast, Mark. Beautiful, thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you. You may regret having a psychologist on, you might never have another one, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> Tell me about your younger years and how you went at school, what led you into your career? Yeah, sure. So, look, I grew up in uh, northeast Victoria, um, up in the mountains as a, as a little kid. So I was always interested in the outdoors because uh, the t- little town that I lived in was was uh, very small. It was a, a um, my dad was a an engineer on a hydroelectric dam, um, and so pretty much kids played outside. That's all all you had to do. So I was often out the back um, down at the, on the Middle River, um, and the fishing and just running around like a little kid. Um, we moved down to Melbourne when I was about seven or eight. Um, and I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula, which is another kind of outdoor surfy type of place. So a lot of kids, um, you know, they used to hang out with, we'd all go surfing and spearfishing, etc. And so look, sport was always a big part of my life as a kid. Um, and I think like everybody, you know, in the latter years of, of high school, I was thinking about well what do I what do I do with my life uh and for me it was always going to be around sport so I, I jokingly say that I wanted to become a physiotherapist but spelt it <laughs> wrong on my university application and ended up becoming a sports psychologist yeah right <laughs> so so my interest in psychology was always about sport or performance how do people perform better and so yeah like most sort of budding sports psychologists you start out doing a a general psychology degree in, in you know, everyday run-of-the-mill psychology, which I hated with a passion, if only because I didn't feel like I had a lot in common with, with a lot of those psychologists. I mean, I was, a, as I say, an outdoor surfy guy with long hair and a ponytail. This is back in the 80s and the 90s, who uh, was into triathlon and all sorts of things. And, and most of the other students that I was studying psychology with were um, without... You know, sounding too condescending, were warm and fuzzy and liked talking for long periods of time in the library and I was just never there. So I was off, you know, doing doing athlete. I was a triathlete. Uh, look, one of the things I then discovered in, in doing psychology and, and becoming, I went to do a master's in, in performance psychology, sports psych, sport psych um, is there's very little money in sport in Australia, uh, certainly at the, the upper level, which means... As a psych, it's very hard to make a living purely out of sports psychology, unless you're really lucky and, and get signed up by a, a big sporting code. Um, and even then, the money's not great. I think I got quoted $35,000 per annum to work as a sports psych for a leading football team. And that included being at all the training sessions, um, all the games, including the interstate games. Um, and being on call for individual sessions um, for thirty-five yeah, wow. grand, so that's not a lot of money, uh, you know. To which pretty much excludes you from making money anywhere else, right? Because you're traveling and turning up the training sessions and all those other things. That's so really hard yeah. to juggle. Um, so, so basically, I thought, well, you know, bugger, what am I going to do to earn a living? Um, and, unless I'm really lucky. So um, that's really what kind of led me to the military is that I'd always had an interest in the military just from a performance. I mean, athletes often see the military as a 
similar sort of parallel. Um, I was interested in um, special forces for the same sort of reasons. It was the you know high performing side of the the military. A lot of the um, training or fitness training protocols that come out into elite sport come from special forces. Yeah. So there's a lot of parallels there. And I thought, oh well, maybe I could do psychology in the military. Um, and particularly my brand of psychology, which was performance psychology. So I joined the Army Reserve whilst I was still doing my master's degree um, in psych with a view to say, well, you know, I'll get a foot in the door, maybe do a few years as a soldier, get the, the Kapuka stamp and all those sort of typical military stamps and maybe actually become a Special Forces qualified soldier and then think about doing psychology down the track. As it turned out, I didn't meet the medical standards for, for special forces. Um, I've got poor vision in one eye. And so um, the recruiters said, oh, look, you know, you've passed all of the other requirements, but you, you don't meet the medical standards. So thanks very much. See you later. And I thought that was the end of it. So I continued on with my uni studies. And then 12 months later, I was actually driving up to Canberra to do a placement at the Australian Institute of Sport. I got a phone call from recruiting and they said, Oh, we've still got your application here for for you know director entry entry commando um, in the reserves. Um, you know, are you, you going to do anything with that because it's due to expire? Mm. And I said, well, you guys told me I was you know med class four and unsuitable. I mean, oh no, we didn't note that on the follow. We'll close up your, <laughs> your application. You know, we'll, we'll, thanks thanks for you know taking my call. I said, look, just out of curiosity, I mean, I'm studying psychology at university. Is there anything else I can do in the military? And they said, oh yeah. There's a whole psychology <laughs> core, you know, you could join that. And went, oh, okay. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for telling me, which I didn't know at the time. So, so I ended up joining as a, as a uh, psychological examiner mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, went and did Kapuka, which was um, back in those days, it was common induction training. So six weeks at Kapuka. When was this? Um, with IRA. That was 97, 1997. Oh, yeah. Yep. December it was stinking mm-hmm. hot. I think I lost about eight kilos in that six weeks. Uh, but we were treated the same as the regular army. Yeah. So it was was when training was they were trialing six weeks past that, um, and then got allocated to psychology core. Um, there's a uh, ECN one three one, which is um, psychological examiner um, trade core. So I did that and was uh, serving in. Victoria in what was then called three psychology unit but I had my goal absolutely set on getting back into into special forces so I sort of made it known that I was interested in working in special forces I thought I had a good skill set that could help in that area and I was told in no uncertain terms that as a reserves psych examiner based in Melbourne it was never gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) yeah good luck you know that's just a pipe dream it took me seven years from enlistment until I got first posted into into SOCOM. And that was just, I guess, like most people, you, you meet people, you talk, you plant seeds, you um, present ideas, you write, you know, con-ops and suggest how things might work. Um, and I, over that period of time, the world had turned. Um, you know, Timor had happened. Uh, I'd deployed over to Timor uh, twice uh, by this stage, I'd become an officer, so I transferred yeah. across to psychology officer and done all my, um, you know, Reggie basic courses and so forth. Um, got a few ticks in the box, as you know, I didn't make a total fool of myself on deployments, albeit 
Timor, which wasn't, you know, particularly exciting. Um, certainly very interesting. And had formed enough relationships with, with um, the two company of one commando regiment in Melbourne, which is a reserve unit as well, uh, that they could sort of go, oh, yeah, I can see how we could, you know, we could benefit from having a psych on the establishment. So the then OC um, put up a bid to when they were doing a bit of a reorg of the unit and restructuring APNs and surprise, surprise, a, a psychology officer got um, created on the establishment and then I got posted mm -hmm. into that. And that was another massive learning curve. Um, very, very quickly, you know, you realise that, that SOCOM is a completely different organisation from the rest of Army. It has its own language, it has its own culture. Um, it operates completely differently from a from a cultural perspective. You know, I, I went from being Captain Matheson to yep. back to Mark, which is bizarre. You know, apart from obviously the OC was the only person you called Sir, um, and even then it was usually just Boss. Um, but everyone else was on first name basis, which was weird, um, but really enjoyable and and much more conducive to a, a I guess a, a sports like environment where you're working with individuals to help them improve mm. their performance yeah and then the career went on from there yeah and sports psych's really taken off now hasn't it as opposed to back in the 90s it's much more common and people are talking about it even sort of at the junior yep. levels getting teenage kids that are performing well into some sort of program so that they can optimize what they're doing on the field yeah and and for all those obvious reasons that you know um, there really is no there really is no dichotomy there. It's it's just a blend. So, and look, you know, I certainly remember my master's supervisor um, talking about having a clinical ear, which I just sort of poo pooed at the time. And thought, yeah, whatever. Um, but what he meant by that was, you know, yes, you can do all the performance enhancement, visualization, goal setting, anxiety management, all those sorts of things in the world. But if the person's got some underlying clinical issue yeah. and you miss that, yeah. then the sports psych doesn't help, you know, because you haven't addressed the, the core issue that's probably holding them back. So you need to have one ear that's listening for the sports psych stuff and another ear that's, you know, always assuming people are people, right? So so I'm still looking for all the clinical stuff because quite often athletes are somewhat unbalanced people. You know, there's a reason why they've chosen to be an elite athlete. Yeah, you need to be pretty obsessive sometimes and <laughs> compulsive yeah. about what you're doing. And... Absolutely. Yep. You know, and we see that in medicine, don't we? I mean, yep. surgeons, you know, my partner's an anaesthetist. Just mm -hmm. because they're incredibly intelligent and highly trained doesn't mean they're not immune to all of the other stuff, you know, stress and anxiety and depression and like, yeah. so forth. And, and in sometimes their careers and, and, and particularly in health, I would say, create those pathologies because it's extremely helpful um, to be quite OCD as a surgeon. You don't mm. don't want to leave shit inside people, yeah? No, um, <laughs> you don't want sure that complacency. That you... <laughs> no, so so, yeah. so in that sense, those, those career um, behaviours which are normalised often drive those things, and the same in, same in sport. Mm. You know, be, being OCD, being highly anxious uh, has a performance benefit, which is not always good. I know, and that's probably where I've come full circle in in my thinking is that some, sometimes um, helping people to become high performers is also akin to helping them become pathological in their behaviours. So you, you need to have a moral compass. Yeah. 
somewhere mm. in there that goes, oh, hang on. Um, yeah, no, you know, exercise can be addictive. Um, yep. You know, monitoring nutrition for all sorts of performance reasons can be pathological. Um, and, and what I found through working in special forces in the military was exactly that. Um, you know, these high-performing special forces personnel were sometimes a creations of that culture. You know, the, mm. they become uh, very, you know, they, we use a lot of metaphor in special forces, you know, the thin edge of the wedge and the tip of the spear. Um, but sometimes that can also mean that they're quite brittle. Um, they're very narrow in their ability to perform in a very narrow segment of human performance. Um, and and quite poor in a whole range of other very general areas of life. So that so here's me thinking that I'll just be doing performance enhancement, and of course you end up saying, well, hang on, there's a whole lot of other clinical psych skills that I need to have in order to be a good generalist. Yeah. Uh, to be really effective at both enhancing performance and capability for the military, but also not creating too much pathology in in doing mm. that. So. I guess to sort of take it back a bit, people mm. in the general public probably aren't aware how much military training health professionals do, and yeah. psychologists are certainly not excluded from that. So you're obviously trained on weapon systems, you've done a host of courses that are specific to being an uh, army officer. Yep. And what else did you have to do to then become deployable? Uh, well, look, psychs are an interesting creature because... Um... For a long time, we were seen as separate from a lot of the other health cores, as you probably know. So it's only been in the last mm. probably five years that we've become, uh, that psych core has become the fourth health service. So that meant we had our own specific ROBC, Regimental Officer Basic Course, which was psych specific. And, and all other health officers did LOBC, right? With logistics yeah. officers. Logistics. So you were seen as a yeah. logistician. Um, and psychologists weren't. And I always thought that was really weird uh, because it kind of put us in this silo where you become uh, less functional, less less you add less capability to the system, even though you're often embedded with a hospital or embedded mm. with a health team. You can't do any of the logistics officer planning, you know, health-type logistics. So I, I was certainly pushing to get on and out, you know, some of the logistics courses uh, at that stage. Uh, you didn't career. miss much, just... just no, no. <laughs> conscious of that but um what i did uh, and look this short answer was no you can't get on you're a psych officer you just stay in your lane yeah right and so i didn't do them but i certainly thought it was useful um but i did do you know all the typical um you know sort of staff courses that that all um, officers need to do i made a point of trying to excel on those because certainly in the socom world you know, you were seen as a liability in every which way if you couldn't be self-sufficient yeah. as an officer in a GSO mm. sense. So you didn't need to plan operations or, or so forth, but you certainly needed to sit in on them and understand what the hell was going on yeah. to see where you could add capability, you know, from personnel selection to team support to team design to capability design, which are all sort of industrial psych capabilities. Mm. Um, so I made a point of learning as much as I could. And look, the good thing about uh, SOCOM is um, typically they're very helpful to anyone who shows interest. So if you're willing to go in extra days and become qualified in extra weapon systems or sit and do some planning activities with other officers, you know, because of that 
very flat hierarchical structure. Mm. Um, if you're if you're inside the tent, and what I mean by that is that you know you're accepted into that culture because you you turn up and you're you know not afraid to put your hand up. Then the world becomes your oyster. So so you know me personally, I'm as qualified on M4 and all the pistol systems on shotgun. Yeah. You know, heavy weapon systems because I was never going to use that in a deployed situation. If if the psyche is out there manning a heavy weapon system, something yeah. really bad <laughs> has happened, right? But it all adds to your credibility yeah. within that culture. It's good fun, good learning, and you get to know people that you're training. Yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. So so it's a, it's it's a way you know, particularly as a psychology officer, where you start well behind the eight ball. Because you know, many people are—I um, won't say scared—but that they just don't understand psychology. They think you're out to pathologize them, uh, and certainly in SOCOM, there's a, there's a fear that you're going to somehow negatively impact their career. Yeah. Because you know, if anyone's seen talking to the psychology officers, like shit, what's going on with that guy? You know, why is he talking to the psych officer? So, <clears throat> in some sense, I guess my goal was to break down that barrier that stigma and say hey i'm just like you i'm interested in performance i'm happy to put myself up you know to do these things so i made sure i could you know do a bfa at the same sort of standards that the socom guys could do you know i would go and do pack you know, a lot of them would be coming through the reinforcement cycle so they'd be coming in and training for selection so i'd train with them i'd do stomps with packs on I made sure I was extremely competent in, in basic weapon systems, not because I needed to use them in yeah. conflict, but because again it was a way of them going, oh, this this guy seems like he's actually switched on and you know not that much of a threat. He's actually interested in helping us. To- yeah, absolutely. So tell me about the role, the mm. bits and pieces that you're doing day to day as a military psych. Are you doing? sort of performance screening, seeing if people are appropriate to um, go on selection, and then you're obviously treating acute issues as well as that performance management side. Just sort of run through people who don't know. There's probably a lot of people in the military who don't know what psychs do still. <laughs> to be honest, it's a bit of a mythical um, it is. core at times. Yeah, Absolutely. And look, you raise a really good point, which is which is one I certainly tried to address, and, and that is that, that military psychology... Look, psychology in general, I think, is poorly understood by, by most people. There's a lot of um, you know myths about what people do and you know, the standard joke at a social activity. Oh, are you psychoanalyzing me? Um the correct answer is yes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so look, the, the role of a military psychologist, I have to say, has changed. It, it is evolving, and that's partially to do with the last 10 years of the ADF really focusing on an ADF mental health strategy. So it's become far more clinical than it was. But the history of it, and there's still certainly strong components of it, is really in what's called industrial and organizational psychology. So think of it as strategic human resource consulting. So so you really work for the commander. You work for whoever is the commander and your job is to advise on the human capability within their workforce and to maintain and enhance that capability. So anything that supports that Selecting the right people, training them in a certain way, um, treating them if they become you know, broken, um, rehabilitating them, designing um, workforce issues or human, what we call workforce analysis. So develop, you know, how do you move people through and promote them to create future capability, leadership training, 
all of those things was always the role of, of military psychologists. So you were there to generate and maintain the human capability from a psychological perspective. What that means is a military psych is you're a jack of all trades because you never know what you're going to get in any particular unit. You know, sometimes there are cultural issues. Sometimes people get posted to certain places for compassionate purposes. So you have a whole bunch of people that are, you know, rehabilitating or being assessed or being managed out of the system. Um, there's a whole lot of welfare issues. Sometimes there's burnout issues because particular units like special forces get used a lot at a very high tempo. Um, but really, you, you're trying to function at those three levels of operation. There's tactical stuff, so people coming into your office for whatever. Mm-hmm. might be just a psych screen or a, they might be changing trades and they need to be have a, have a psych assessment to go from driver to cook. You wouldn't actually need a trade transfer for that, but you get what I'm saying, like changing yeah. jobs where they need to be assessed to make sure they're suitable for that, to a return to Australia psych screen, to you might be conducting, um, uh, we used to do a, what I got, a big survey of, of unit culture. So you might be running that survey across the unit to measure the cultural issues. So you're screen, putting out psych screens um, to contributing to a, a future ops plan about what you know human capabilities might be required i mean i had a guy walk into my office in in perth and say we're thinking about putting soldiers ex-troopers so this is sas ex-troopers who are physically broken uh, through a forward-looking infrared training course so that they can fly civilian aircraft across civilian airspace at night and use forward-looking infrared what do we need to do for a site you know from a psych perspective Mm. okay i'll go and find out you know so there's a whole lot of you know physiological flight characteristics that we assess pilots and aircrew for is operating a forward-looking infrared you know etc etc so there's ways we can provide input to the design of workforce issues through just general counseling you know sometimes people come in and their marriage is on the rocks or you know, their kids are having trouble at school and they just want to have a bit of a yap mm. Um, so, yeah, you would never know what you get, but, but it would always imply at some level, whether you're doing tactical stuff, operational stuff to support something in terms of a current op or, or strategic planning stuff, you would be trying to think at those three levels to, again, to support the commander in achieving their operation or their mission, which was you know both a garrison-based training pipeline and a deployed capability. So you needed to be able to jump across all three of those the levels across the two dimensions of operations mm. at any point in time and, and look quite often you're 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 it so that, you know most units and or deployed capabilities have one psychologist yeah makes you really broad you can see a lot of similarities between other health as you're talking it's just like yep yep you gotta be a jack of all trades so working for the commander does your moral compass ever take a bit of a hit sometimes because you're there to generate that capability for army and you're not necessarily your top priority is not necessarily the person on the couch your patient yeah they can't be because what's good for them sometimes may not be good for the organization or vice versa yeah so so look i think you do get a lot of those um challenging uh, dual role requirements, particularly in mental health. I think sometimes the complexity with mental health, and there's a more of a personal opinion, is 
and often there's no f- strong physical reason. So like in, in, you know, biomedicine, I guess if someone's got a shattered knee, well, <laughs> it's pretty clear. That, yeah. All right, you're not staying on this deployment because your knee's rooted, right? Whereas if they come in and they, they're stressed or they're exhibiting some anxiety or maybe they've got something going on back home that they're, you know, having difficulty managing, it's, it's a lot more grey. And, you know, you might have a, a, a commander who for their own reasons in terms of history and personality or whatever their views around mental health just wants that problem to go away as in send that person home and you might think well there's actually no real strong reason to send this person home because you know from a functional assessment perspective yes they've got some anxiety but they they can function they can still do their job there's no reason to send them home but you've also got the politics of if you piss off the commander too much, you know, not, not achieve the, the actual objective of supporting mm. them, um, then you run the risk of actually becoming, you know, a, a, a liability yourself. So you're often playing these roles of education, politics, <clears throat> um, you know, actual mental health support. And mm. you end up leaning a lot on your credibility and relationship with the commander to achieve to, to yeah. achieve outcomes. So sometimes that can mean some some challenging conversations um particularly when quite often i mean the deployable sort of um psychologist is typically only a captain and you're dealing with you typically lieutenant colonel and above uh, and you're also in a health corps versus a typically combat arm corps um and in my position you're quite often a reservist versus you know full-time even though you know on deployment you're often cfts etc um yeah so yeah, you you were often put in some pretty challenging, um, not just moral but just ethical and polit- professional decision making decisions. Um, but I mean, your 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 advice to the commander is always a recommendation. It's a recommendation, recognizing that executive authority rests with the commander. So you can make a recommendation and say, I think this person should stay. But I also need to be, accept that the commander might say, thanks, Captain Matheson, <clears throat> but we're going to send him home. Okay, mm-hmm. so now I've got to not deal with the fallout of that, but I've got to have a plan in place to deal with the fact, well, the commander might not accept my recommend, recommendation and that's, their, uh, that's the authority they have as a, as a commander in the military. What do I, I then need to do to put in place for the individual who's possibly going to be devastated by that, that decision? psychologically so i need to plan for both contingencies always in terms of looking after the dual role that you have one is to look after the commander provide professional and good advice the other is to look after the the person sitting in front of you do you think that's a barrier to them accessing care if they need it absolutely as a general yeah because they know you're going to have an influence particularly over their career in the short term. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, I think, it, I mean, that relationship works both ways. So so I was always of the view that you have to be completely transparent and honest from the moment mm. they walk in the door. I mean, they might be sent there under executive authority, as in the commander has sent them to see you to have an assessment done. And that means they have to have an assessment. But you can't force people to talk. And you know, I could sit there and go, yeah. I'm not telling you anything. Um, exactly. And the only way sometimes to get around that as a psychologist in the military is to say, look, I'm going to lay all the cards on the table. Commander, X, Y, Z, this is what they want. This is what you want. 
let's make it work. You know, what's the best case scenario? What's mm-hmm. the worst case scenario? Um, you know, I will. I, I firmly believe you should stay here. I'm going to write a report that recommends that you're going to stay here. But let's be honest, we can't guarantee that the commander's going to agree with that. Um, how's it going to roll if you if you sent home? Let's let's agree between you and me what the plan is if that if that scenario happens. Yeah. And look, most most people I think appreciated that. They might not like it, but but if mm. you're a military member, invariably you know that the buck stops with the commander. So if they can see that you're advocating for a you know good outcome, um, that, that you're honest in saying I can't make this happen one way or another, and even if you're advocating for what they think is a bad outcome, as in you think no, I really think you should be going home. Uh, as long as you spell that out to the person and say this is why, these are the risks. How would we ever justify that? How would I justify to your family keeping you on a deployment when? You're you're unwell, you know, and the, and and we need to trust in the system that, you know, we're we're not here to to make your life worse. We're here to try and save your career, and part of that means you being open and honest too. Because if you just sit here and say nothing, well, guess what I have to say to the commander? You know, you, that the individual did not comply with the instruction, and they were adversarial, and so we're left with no option but to send mm-hmm. you home, you know, because. I can't make a risk assessment because you're not talking to to the psychologist. So, yeah, there are very few outcomes in certainly in my time where, you know, people weren't begrudgingly, sometimes, at least leaving that session knowing what was happening. And I think that's that's a big part of being able to sleep at night. And I often would say, hey, look, I've got to be able to sleep at night too. Yeah, you might not like the fact that I think you need to go home if it's a deployment, for example, or you're not suitable to serve in special force. You might not like that, but I'm being honest with you, and here are my reasons why. And if you want to repercharge that or uh, or come back to me with some questions later, totally okay. Yeah, because I realise that this is going to have an impact mm. on you, and that's just fair. Um, but I want to be able to go home and sleep at night and know that I've made a good decision that actually is looking after both you and the and the military because that's that's my job. But yeah, lots of heated conversations. <laughs> uh, yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had commanders argue with me over an X-ray, and you put it up, and you can clearly see the the um, you know you've got tangible evidence that somebody is broken and and cannot therefore do their job. So when you're trying to relay it as a um, you know <laughs> a set of psychological examination yeah. points, then yeah, I can imagine it would be incredibly complex. Yeah, look, it can be, but it can also be very simple, and it, and it yeah. often comes down to that that level of trust. If and look, sadly, perhaps, I think my experience was, not, not just in the military, but in a lot of places I've worked, is that it only takes, again, sadly, one bad outcome where you've made a recommendation or said, oh, I don't think this person's suitable. And then that comes true. You know, like, oh, no, we really mm. want them. Okay. You know, but here are the things you probably need to, yeah. you know, risk mitigate against. Oh, no, we don't need any of that. Uh, and as we all know, not not just in the military, but in many parts of the employment spectrum, when, when that person who ends up chewing up 80% of your administrative time because they've become a massive liability for your organisation, and that sits really squarely on the commander, 
quite often they listen to you from then on, you know? Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not saying that's all. There, there are people who are great and get it from, get it from the get-go, but, but even the ones who initially are adversarial, if you continue to make good advice both ways, I accept your decision, you know, commander, sir, ma'am. Um, but having said that, here's my recommendations regardless, and that includes if you decide to take this person or choose them or keep them on deployment, whatever, here are the things I would be recommending you do to, to manage them. Yeah, when those things come true, it, people go, oh, shit, maybe I should have listened to the psych. Um, and, and it often only takes one of those bad outcomes uh, before they become converts. If, if you're doing your job well, you know, mm. if you're getting it right. What uh, personality traits do you think make a good special forces operator? Look, that, that's a, it's a really interesting question because the first thing I'd say is there are a bunch of personality traits that make people good special forces operators. The caveat is it often doesn't make them good human beings. And I think that's what people and your listeners need to, to understand is that the, the demands of a, a war, let's be honest, or conflict, require things of humans that in everyday life are somewhat dysfunctional. Yeah, so being OCD, we, we sort of jokingly mentioned that previously, but, but checking and rechecking and you know obsessing about things uh, is highly functional in a special forces environment because it keeps you alive. Right. Yeah. So cleaning your weapons fastidiously, being OCD about your kit and your gear, and checking and rechecking and planning and replanning, and mm-hmm. you know to the point of staying up all night before going out on a patrol, just checking and rechecking and rechecking and rechecking. In a military context, that's really functional, right? It it, it keeps yeah. you alive and it keeps your mates alive. In everyday life, it's pretty dysfunctional. You know, and we see mm-hmm. a lot of these things. <clears throat> which we ironically then call trauma or PTSD that come out of these um, patterns of behavior, which in one context were high performance criteria, right? So the soldier who's always got their gear squared away and is 100% tickety-boo is the soldier, and I shouldn't just, I mean, I'm using soldier because I'm army, but it applies to all three services, Yeah, um, is the soldier that you want to serve next to, right? Because their, their mm. shit is squared away and you know that you can rely on them to have their gear good to go, but they're not the person that you want to live with, right? Because they're a pain in the ass to live with in a house, you know, where everything's got to be checked and rechecked and tidy and neat and washed and cleaned and dried and put away and all that sort of stuff. They're, they're a very difficult person to live with. And nothing has changed about the person. It's just the environment that's changed. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, you know, all of what I would say are fairly obvious performance. So internal drive, a fixation on single goals, an ability to block out and compartmentalize everyday life issues. So they, you know, I don't say they forget about their family, but they can park their family. Yeah, you put know? that in a box till later. Put it in a box, or... and I'm not going to speak to them for, you know, there were often soldiers who would not talk to their families for the entire deployment mm. because it was just too hard to open the box, get it back out, play with it, put it away. You know, if you had to do that every day, it, you know, they just don't have the, the, the cognitive space to do that when they're trying yeah. to focus on extremely complex, demanding missions. Um, that take them physically to the edge where they're sleep deprived and you know, mm-hmm. all these other physiological things that erode resilience. 
and then they've got to get it home and read their kids a bedtime story every night. Yeah. It's too much for most of them. So there's certainly worse soldiers that could do that. You know, often again, they've just put their family in a box, focused on their career, um, became obsessive about doing well in that space. And, and that's what makes them special forces, you know? Mm. So the military wants that. The military encourages that. It endorses that. And it makes them highly functional in that environment. And then what we often don't recognize is that we've created a person that is highly adapted highly suited to a particular type of environment and then we send them home hmm. and go oh well you know just get a job when you get out of the military and you'll be right yeah and god forbid if we send them home injured yeah that's right so so when when we don't need them or they decide they don't want it anymore that the uh the, the things that were highly adapted and highly functional become often dysfunctional. And then we blame the soldier for that. We don't say, oh, hang on, maybe we had a role as an organisation in creating that, you know, and since we have a responsibility to sort of manage that transition and readaptation process, we just go, oh, you're yeah. out of the military now, <laughs> not our responsibility, and you're broken. Mm. Oh, fancy that, you know. How did you not cope? Yeah. Weirdo. Um, uh, so go off and see, your, you know, your civilian psychologists and and put your claim in through DVA. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, your question's it's, it's a funny one and, and it probably tells a, a full circle for a sports psychologist who is interested in creating high performance. And as I said earlier on, it, you know, the irony of that is that sometimes you're creating, I wouldn't say it's pathology, but it's an adaptation process which the organisation has a very clear moral responsibility for creating but hasn't really, I don't think, got its head around the moral responsibility for yeah. adapting to a new a new part of life. And just winding <clears throat> it back a few notches. Yeah. 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 We, we, the, and look, part of that is clearly the delineation between defence, in or out, and then DVA and other support services. That That's really, for me, where the, the, that moral responsibility is very poorly mm. managed. I mean, there's lots of... I mean, there's lots of things that happen in that transition. It's not like you walk out the door, as we all know, but the, the transition is very cursory and it's overly focused on just getting a job on the outside. We, like your economic problems will solve everything else. Mm. Look, if you happen to get a job that has an environment that is very similar to the one you came from in defence, then you can probably make a reasonable adaptation. See, lots of people that work in really remote austere mining yeah. jobs or security jobs yeah. and guess what you know they actually manage that transition pretty well not because of anything they've done it's just they've chosen an environment and a job that is very similar police fire ambulance is full of ex-military for all those Absolutely. reasons You're attracted to a service industry working with like-minded people yep yeah They're fueled by adrenaline it's high performance focused you know all that sort of good stuff um what i will say is that you know th there is still a I guess a psychological burden. I mean, being in those high performance spaces, <clears throat> I wouldn't say burns people out, but it, it has a load, right? It, it, what we call an allostatic mm. load. So it's just a, it's it's like running, you know, your car on high performance fuel and just revving the shit out of it for, you know, ten years. Regardless of the fact you're putting all the right things in, it still it wears out, right? You know, yeah. No, no one's capable of operating at that high rpms forever so even if you do transition into a similar environment like any of the paramilitary services you, you come 
partially worn out, right? So the likelihood that you're going to have some more difficulties or slow down or be less capable in those spaces is is probably higher um, because you're going into another high performance environment where you're still burning the candle. Um, and, and, you know, often we do still see some of those pathologies or that burden start to take a toll, even in mm. those spaces. Um, but the structure and the environment and the similarities provide some protection as well. Whereas if you go out and suddenly, what am I, join a bank and just work yeah. as a bank teller, um, the, the, the transition is quite rough for a lot of people because they lose a lot of those supportive structures that, that kind of kept them in the, in the box mm. for a period of time, yeah. So mm. multiple tours with special forces. Mm-hmm. Where did you go and what did you do? What cases that you can talk about to identify yeah. sort of stand out for you? Uh, so look, between 2005 and 2011, um, I did six trips to Afghanistan and one to Iraq, one to Antarctica, which wasn't a military mm. deployment, but um, it was a deployment as such. We were working with um, ANARI, which is the Australian National Antarctic Research Expedition. And uh, cases I can talk about. Wow. Um, look, I think some of the trickiest ones, which are probably interesting to your listeners, are, are those ones where you are asked to do an assessment on individual soldiers uh, for retention on the on the deployment. Uh, and look, you know, certainly, certainly within regular military, regular army, let alone within SOCOM, the idea of being sent home by the psych, you know, is probably. <laughs> If not the worst case scenario for any military personnel, it's certainly one of you know the things that they're they're terrified about, and so that that was always the most challenging. And I think that the the unique aspect, which you know is probably similar for many of the health services, is that you're sitting and talking with somebody who has quite often two loaded weapon systems on on them at any point in time, right? Yeah. So when you're talking about things like are you feeling suicidal? You know, the next question is, do they have access to means? Well, yeah, bloody oath they have access to means. Um, and it's sitting right here. And as we, as we know from a lot of, you know, research on, on suicide, that the gap between suicide and homicide is very small. Someone's prepared to kill themselves, then they're also prepared to kill other people. Not always, you know, highly correlated, mm. but... If, if their thinking is, is disordered enough, they're under enough allostatic load that they're thinking of ending their own life, then then certainly, you know, some of those tactical recovery exercises, those hostage recovery situations where you're thinking about, you know, what it's, what it, uh, negotiating people off the roof sort of stuff, um, you, you know, one of the first things you always think about is your own safety. So as a psychologist, you're sitting there thinking, I'm doing an assessment on this person to work out whether they're suitable enough to stay on a military operation, that they're highly stressed and suicidal, and they've got two loaded weapon systems sitting right here, right now. And I'm possibly the person that's going to send them home. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and look, that, that happened, obviously, on a number of occasions. Uh, and, and needless to say, you just need to think through those risks, risk assessments. Um, how do you get a military personnel um, member who's on an active deployment where they've been trained to within an inch of their life to, 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 to know that you never leave your weapon system unattended or you don't go anywhere without it? 
to then hand their weapons into the armory. Yeah, and walk around with you a know. buddy for personal walk, protection. Yeah, walk around a base with everyone else. So it's, yeah. hey, that dude doesn't have his gap with him. Oh. What's going on? Yeah, you know. Um, so there's so so the the time frame often between that person being assessed and if they're going to go home and them being on the plane can sometimes be hours because as soon as you've done that assessment and you've decided that they're not clinically safe to stay on the deployment, everybody knows. Mm. And and that person, that has a direct impact on them and their mental health functioning as well. You know, they don't want to be there because who wants to be the military member walking around with a buddy uh, who's clearly at risk? You don't want to stay there. It's not a, not a pleasant space to be in for that individual. And, and usually without seeming overly harsh, the culture within that unit is we don't want you here either, mm. you know, because it reminds us or presents us with that option of people may not be coping really well. And when you're on a deployment, certainly places like, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan where there's asymmetric threats and, you know, people have to be on their, they're hyper-vigilant anyway to anything that's potentially a risk factor. The last thing you want to be thinking about is that your, your teammates or your patrol mates could be that risk factor because they're not got their head in the game. Um, so they were the, always the most challenging ones. And then trying to handle that, you know, and influence the system to do it with some dignity yeah. as opposed to um, making it a punitive process, which did happen. And rather than <clears throat> purely seeing it as the fault of the individual to also be able to step back as a, as a unit or a deployed capability and go, how did we contribute to this? situation or you know do will be doing sufficient um sort of uh, uh you know, do we have sufficient visibility of these issues to be able to prevent them hmm. how did you manage your own mental health hmm. especially when you're you've got a whole heap of vicarious trauma and look i guess that the, the theory and the policy was that that we went through the same process as everybody else and what I mean by that is, you know, there's a return to Australia psych screening process, which which all personnel would, would have um, coming out of theatre. And then there was the post-op psych screen, which was, you know, three to six months post-deployment. So we were certainly um, required to go through those with everybody else. There was usually two options. If you had another psychologist within the military who you trusted um, to be able to manage that sort of dual relationship of seeing a peer, maybe it was a superior in terms of rank and experience, then you could use a, a internal military psych. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also did have the option of using external um, paid clinicians. Uh, so we could go and see an external CB psych. The vast majority, in my experience, of, of military psychs would just see somebody internal to the system for all the same reasons that military personnel typically prefer to see health professionals within the military is that they understand the system um, you don't have to spend all your time explaining things, whereas you often do with a civilian practitioner yeah. because they don't understand how the military operates and so forth and why you were doing things certain ways. Um, and certainly within the, the complexity of military psych, which you know most um, so general psychologists don't understand, then, then yeah, it was far easier to have someone inside the system. The, the disadvantage of that was a bit like the broader military. It's a self-licking ice cream. So... Um, 
you know, no, no one was going to probably be the internal military psych who put another military psych out of a job. So there was always a bit of a cursory process. It was a bit of a box ticking activity on the mm. assumption that you're okay. Yeah, you're okay. Oh, I'm okay. Yeah. yeah, we're all okay. I don't <laughs> want to get posted out of SOCOM. So yeah, you're okay. You know, <laughs> so the, the dual role relationship probably in that circumstance wasn't great and probably hid uh, 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 or minimized at the very least uh, an awful lot of vicarious trauma. And certainly I can say amongst my colleagues, um, by that I mean the broad military psychology fraternity, um, is, there's a lot of people that I now know are sort of struggling with that, that legacy and burnout issues and probably mm. only now really coming to realise that the impact that that period of time had on us as a cohort. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of stuff where I can certainly say that uh, you know, keeping up with the Joneses in the military as a psychologist <clears throat> kept me busy for 10 years of my life. Um, and I never really stopped and unpacked any of that sort of allostatic load, mm. um, uh, much like many other SOCOM personnel or, or military personnel. We were busy doing what we're supposed to do, which is to keep the military ticking along and doing... You know, the ADF is, much like any military, it's a yes organisation. Can you do that? Yes. You know, um, how are you going to manage the burnout? Don't worry, we'll do it. Yes. You know, yeah. um, so, so you don't want to be the person who says, oh, hang on, no, <laughs> can't do that. Sorry. Because, you know, that, that's when you then fall into that other bandwagon. So I, I think to answer your question, honestly, probably poorly is the, is the was it managed? Who sucks the psych? Probably poorly. And, and we are one of those professions in the military that's fairly digital. It's it's kind of very inwards looking. It's very narrow. Uh, you know, if I had a physical injury, yeah, sure, I'd go and see the RMO like everybody else and have it put on my med file. But if I had a psych issue, fuck, I wasn't telling anyone. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, certainly on a deployment. Um, we, we had a reach back, you know, what we call a reach back capability. So we had a technical chain of command like everybody else. We could reach back um, to Australia and, and, and tap into other other psychologists um, within the military. But SOCOM is also very, very isolated um, from many of those technical capabilities. Uh, so much like anybody who's posted into SOCOM, my boss was the CO. Yeah, so, so I had to clear anything that I passed back to the technical chain of command, as another psychologist, through the CO. And if the CO didn't want me passing that back for whatever reason, well, I didn't. Yeah. So you ended up not being able to share all of the relevant information with even with your technical chain of command. Because a lot of those operations and details are classified at that time. Yeah, and all the personnel yeah. are protected identity status. Yep. Um you know, unit capabilities are all classified. Um, personnel numbers are all classified. Locations of operations mm -hmm. and deployed numbers are classified. Um, the operational capability of that unit, which includes clearly mental health, is classified. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not just classified within Army, but classified within SOCOM because it's a, you know, it's a compartment within the security yes. classification systems. To the point where sometimes personnel would come into your office within SOCOM and say, are you cleared for me to talk to you about this stuff? You know, I, I can talk. To, oh, well, I'm cleared to talk to you about psychology stuff. You don't have to tell me the details of where you went and mm. what you did. 
but how how did that impact yeah. on you? And they go, mm, yeah. So you know, when I was in <laughs> Lebanon, what? Why were you in Lebanon? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that stuff happened all the time. You know, people would disappear off their planes. You know, C seventeens would land in Perth, and people would disappear off and come back three weeks later. And you know, was I allowed to ring up? army chain of command and go oh we've got we've had 35 soldiers come back from a place i can't tell you about and do stuff i can't tell you about but you know i've done their return to australia psych screens and i can't tell you about them so yeah it it was always conflicted by the fact that you were in a very insular part of the organization that that didn't share well for all sorts of good reasons uh and, and that made clinical practice let alone supervision as a as a psychologist um, mm. Very difficult. You certainly couldn't go and talk to a clinical psychologist and out in the street about it. Oh, I've just got to talk about this guy who's, you know, shot some child in the streets of a place they shouldn't have been at, you know, and it's more well, heavy. Yeah. You, you can't, there's no supervision for that. Mm. So, speaking on transition, after 22 years, you decided to leave. And why was that? And what have you been doing since? Well, I, I guess the short version is, I mean, I, I probably got promoted to my highest level of ineptitude. <laughs> so uh, psychology course is very yeah. small. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's really only a handful of people that kind of make it to the, the, the lieutenant colonel and above space. In fact, mm. there's usually only one full colonel in the course. So it's, you know, very small and, and fairly short career. Um, uh, and I'd, I guess two things. A, I'd probably done everything I wanted or ever dreamed I could do. I mean, you know, multiple deployments with SOCOM, working in both, you know, well, th- all three of the, the SOCOM units, as it was in those days. There's more now. But um, se- seeing and contributing to all those things at a fairly high level, you know, that ticked mm-hmm. all the sports psyche kind of performance boxes. And I'd learnt lots of stuff and realised, well... Um, you know, there's, there's probably more to this puzzle than a nice, easy, simple answer. Like some people perform well and mm. others don't. It's messy. Um, <clears throat> and then getting posted into into policy jobs in Canberra where uh, I guess my take was there was a, and this is a very personal view, there was an over, over-reliance and over-the-top over focus on clinical issues just the, the mental health stuff, ADF mental health strategy was it in a bit and and the loss of um, or the lack of interest in the broader organisational psychology workforce planning issues. Um, the politics and the money had basically sided with clinical psychology. I'm not a clinical psychologist, I'm a general psychologist. Um, and the writing was kind of on the wall that unless you were on board with clinical mental health, tactical service mm-hmm. provision, being a clinical psychologist and delivering counselling and assessment services, there wasn't really a role for you in the, in the military, which I find incredibly ironic given <clears throat> the outcomes we've had from you know nearly 20 years of operational service uh, on the mental yeah. health of personnel and, and a royal commission into, into ADF mm-hmm. suicide. <clears throat> we're not interested in... Um, you know, having a, a strategic human resource capability within defence or within army at least, all we want is is counsellors. And I say that, you know, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek. I know army does want more than that, but, but that's really what's happened. Is m- m- most of the psychologists now are, are clinical psychologists, and that's no disrespect to them. 
they do great clinical work. Um, but Army has perhaps inadvertently deconstructed that organisational capability, that focus on performance enhancement and operational capability as, as a psychological capability. And I would argue probably lost its way as a result because who's giving that advice to commanders now? Nobody. You know, there's a whole bunch of work that that's, you know, needs to be done in those spaces around developing better programs to support the transition of, of military personnel out of the military <clears throat> to, 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 to work with them as, you know, veterans and, and hopefully successful members of the community, et cetera, et cetera. And there's probably a whole lot of stuff that needs to be done, I think, around culture change within the community about understanding what, bring, what veterans bring back to the community that's valuable, which we've lost. You know, we just often see veterans as, well, they're people that are on gold cards, right, that have got some trauma and they're angry and they yell at people. Isn't that's that's kind of what veterans are and they need lots of psych support and medication but there's a whole piece around the fact that you know it was the the serving veterans who bought the i guess the experience of warfare back into our communities and reminded us as a community that war's bad right it's not a cool thing and it has some pretty costly um sort of outcomes not just for for military personnel but for all of us um and we probably stopped listening to that I yeah. think certainly in Australia, um, we like to glorify veterans and trot them out on Anzac Day and Remembrance Day and football games and other things and, and leverage off them as being heroes. I don't know anyone who's a veteran, SOCOM or otherwise, who sees themselves as a hero. Hmm. That's, that's not the lesson that I think the military is meant to, to t- teach the community. It's that war yeah. is fucking bad um, and it should be avoided at all costs. Um, and I certainly think our political sort of part of you know the the politicians of the world have lost that understanding and there's it's not lost on i think many veterans that that um where 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 as in i'm one um you know sort of allocated to this scrap heap of uh, of of the community and seen as people that can't work because we're on a tpi or you know just gotta um, be part of the dva system and, and whinge about that um, so there's lots of lots of work to do in that space. I think to to reframe that and rebuild some of those those understandings and capabilities, not not least at the tactical level for the veterans themselves, but again operational and strategic. You know, <clears throat> what have we lost or what are we not good at at those things? So that'll keep me busy for a long time yet. I'd say. And there's a whole host of people out there or veterans out there that are well and doing <laughs> doing good things the and, vast majority. you know and enjoyed their experiences overseas and and yep. felt like they made a good contribution and the full it's, spectrum it's, isn't it it's labels you know and, it, and it's yeah. and it's poorly understood labels and there's a whole piece around education mm. uh, and look you know dva plays into that i mean that the, the the tpi label kills me you know mm. totally permanently incapacitated really yeah. So you're saying no one can get, like if it's a psych injury that they can't get better because they're totally, permanently incapacitated? Mm. Incapacitated, yeah. Sometimes for a, a period of time, sometimes forever. Um, but not 100% incapacitated. They're not useless, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, if we're labeling things as incapacitated, maybe there's some positives in there too. Like I said, you know, what are the what knowledge is and experiences of the broader world and conflict the veterans bring that maybe we should value. I'm not saying it's pleasant messaging. I'm not saying it's something that most people want to hear. But but maybe veterans were, you know, 
meant to be the ones that, that remind the community of these, that these things are bad and there's something valuable in understanding that. Hmm. I mean, maybe there's a reason why after World War II we didn't have a conflict for such a long period of time. But now we kind of we compartmentalize our veterans, modern contemporary veterans. We compartmentalize them out. We don't really want them to be come back, you know, unless they're a hero. And sometimes heroes fall down too, you know, as we've seen recently. Sometimes mm. it's you know not all it's crept up to be, and part of that is the the rah rah. Yeah, they they've got a medal. They must be this awesome person. Mm. They're just a person. You know, they're 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 not infallible. Yeah, um, and there's something that we should all learn from that, not not just put them up on you know Australia Day or football games, because um, that they're, they're cheap and easy labels. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's a huge amount of work that, that needs to be done, not not just with veterans, but with the whole of the community and the organisations that work in that space about really getting back to basics on those things and understanding. I mean, the fact that a veteran, you know, on many of the, I mean, you get a veteran's discount if you travel on a train in Victoria, right? But only if you have a gold card. Hang on, so which one? The veteran who's gone and served or the veteran who's broken? But they don't see a difference. It's mm. like, well, they're just starting to know they're one and the same thing. Like, you, you, you can only be a veteran if you've got a gold card, right? No. <laughs> You're a veteran if you've served on operational deployments in a warlike operation, you know? That's a veteran, um, but we've we've confused the two. We've confused the two and said that a veteran is only somebody who's broken. Yeah. And that's that's not serving anybody well. Certainly not the veteran community. Um, it's become a. I know this is a sensitive issue, but it's become a, a role that sometimes veterans step into. I'm the broken veteran. I've got a TPI gold card. That, that's my lot in life. I can fulfil that now. I fit in. Look at me. I'm the same as everybody else that's got PTSD. Whoa, whoa, that's super bad, you know. Not, not saying that it's not incorrect, but but it's not healthy, I don't think, um, because it becomes a uh, it beca- becomes a, a self-looking ice cream of itself again. You know that I can't get better because I'm. I, I, that's that's the role. <clears throat> you know, I can post it on my Facebook page. I'm being critical, but you get the gist. I do. You know, yeah. There's certainly lots of good people who come out who are veterans who are live on, go and live highly functional, normal everyday lives. Perhaps, sometimes, luckily, you know, the system is not not great at supporting or understanding that, um, and and they don't have a voice. Yeah. Really, it's only the um, the stereotypical ones that the community decides is what a veteran looks like that that typically we hear about. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. On Anzac Day a couple of years ago, I was holding my son, who's well, my youngest, who was only a baby at that point, and a Vietnam vet uh, come up to me and he asked me where I served and, mm. you know, just sort of had a bit of a chat. And then his next question was, are you going to top yourself like all the others? <laughs> just straight off the bat. And I was like, wow, like... Mm. Uh, you know, I was expecting something else because usually they say, you know, you're wearing them on the wrong side and expect Inside. a young female, you know, or not, yeah. not that I'm that young, but youngish. Yeah. Just the, um, we're sort of stigmatizing each other now. So, mm. yeah, almost scaring people into that, you know, because if you're a normal functional veteran, well, mm. you mustn't have served anywhere, you know, it's, it's like all that. You mustn't have seen anything bad, right? Because, you know, you're clearly sort of okay and 
doing normal stuff. So what, you know, you must have just been a, yeah. Well, I mean, and look, I mean, one of the things that's perhaps unique to, to psychology as a profession is like, well, you yeah. didn't shoot anyone, you didn't see any combat. Well, you know, why would, why would you potentially have suffered any, you know, any adverse outcomes? It's like, well, dude, I listened to probably 3,000 personnel yeah. talk about bad stuff 10, 12 hours a day with no external supervision or opportunity to vent about that because of security carriers. Mm. So, see how you go listening to those sort of stories all day, every day, yeah. and being responsible for the outcomes for people in terms of their mental health and the commander and maintaining their capability and looking after yourself. So, you know, there's even less of an understanding of things like vicarious trauma uh, or, or, or indirect trauma. You know, there's plenty of personnel support staff who served mm. in SOCOM who never went outside the wire. <clears throat> but had to live, you know, for months at a time in a highly toxic, highly competitive culture where they had no control over the outcome. If it was rockets coming in, they couldn't fire back. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of uncontrollables. Working with, you know, human body parts and feces on the bottom of all sorts of vehicles that were, were horrific exposures to things that they had no ability to control or, or, or to, you know, to literally to have a, a, yeah. an outcome that they could control in terms of capability or, or direct, <clears throat> you know. So humans get get exposed to all sorts of things. It's not just the guys that are pulling the triggers or so forth that that have the bad trauma stuff. Uh, it's it's just warfare is bad, you know. And it, and if we expect people to come back from yeah. those things, regardless of what they do or how long they're there for, and just assume that the normal outcome is that everyone will be fine with it, well, again, we've lost lost our way as a community, haven't we? Tell me about the other work you've done post military because. This is also kind of change of pace and, and quite interesting. You obviously worked oil and gas um, in mining operations and that, but then you've done a heap of stuff as a production psychologist on some well-loved or not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> reality TV shows. <laughs> yeah, by, by me as well. Um, look, I kind of fell into that, and it was through the military, so uh, I guess coming back to you know what what does an organizational sort of industrial military site do well you support organizational capability right so you're mission focused you're supporting the the commander to achieve an outcome um <clears throat> so that means you develop a pretty unique skill set which is you know certainly you're very useful in the corporate mm -hmm. sense if you're working on a mining site in terms of you know recruiting and training people to keep costs down and keep production ticking over and people working in remote fly and fly jobs etc so that, that's an easy kind of transition. You can see how that would work. Marriage counselling um, and... <laughs> oh, just, yeah, people, that's right. People are people, right? So it doesn't matter that they're working on a remote mine site. They still bring you know, their head with them. So you know, all that stuff comes mm. with them. And, you know, mining's are particularly focused on bottom lines and profitability. They're, they're, they're you know, capitalist organisations. So you, you can actually, actually you know, add direct value through applying exactly the same skill set, which is well, what's the mission? Well, the mission is to build and operate a mine. You know, yeah. What do you do? Well, I provide you with the human capability and the strategic oversight to achieve that you know, because otherwise you'll spend all your time dealing with marriage issues and mm. relationship breakdowns and kids acting out in school and people being lonely and having anxiety and depression on remote mine sites. Um, but the TV one was a bit out of left field. So I actually had a... Uh, a good mate of mine who I'm sure won't mind me mentioning his name, um, Sam Hay, who's a, a doctor, a GP in Sydney. Uh, he got out full-time a few years before me, um, uh, got married to a TV executive and did a little bit of TV stuff himself uh, and 
and then the the company that his wife was working for picked up the contract for series one of survivor when it sort of was reintroduced into australia this is some nearly 10 years ago now and as part of that franchise so you buy a tv show right it's produced overseas it's got a format what they call a format bible this is how you make the tv show one of the requirements for the for the purchase of the format bible was that they had a psychologist who would be on set and uh obviously ideally have a background in working in remote austere locations where people are kind of being <laughs> semi-tortured and starved and you know put in remote austere places uh mm. and and so i imagine i don't know but but Sam's wife came home one day and said, oh, we've got to get this psychologist. Somebody, how, where am I going to find a psychologist who works in remote, austere you know, locations? And Sam went, I know one. <laughs> yeah, so I got a phone call out of the blue. I was actually standing in a bunning store in, in Wangaratta, where I now live. And um, Sam's wife, Magella, said, oh, <laughs> we're looking for a psychologist who does this sort of weird stuff for a new TV show. Would you be interested? Sam said, you might be interested. And I kind of went, oh, um, yeah, let, let me think about it. So I, I rang Sam and he just said, look, just put in a quote, you know, make, make it worth your while if you're interested. It might be a bit of fun. And it was, and it, and it kind of snowballed from there. And, I, and look, I, I would say again, and I, I suggest this is true because subsequent to that, I've, I've referred work to a couple of other ex-military psychologists uh, over the last few years who've picked up a whole bunch of TV shows as well. So I don't think it's anything unique to me, but what I think it is unique to is that that dual role capability as a psychologist you can, you can see the see the the participant on the tv show as one client that you clearly need to look after but also the fact that you're making a tv show and there's somebody who's you know got a different outcome in mind that that, that they're making a tv show it's about ratings mm. it's got to be about interesting stories that people want to watch um and and there's a tension there sometimes between those two things that that a military psychologist you know is probably uniquely skilled to be able to do you know you've got to serve look after the commander what's the mission and look after the the person at, at the other end and, and there's a moral imperative to be able to juggle those two things mm. which is uh but 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 perception is reality right so so if you're a young uh person who's you know maybe got an opportunity to go on a tv show um you know, very much it can be the making of a, a very lucrative, um, you know, very much life-changing experience. And so, so people do come in to these experiences, sometimes, not all of them, but come in perhaps a little bit naively, um, but certainly with grand ambitions. Um, and it's not my job to, to, to shoot them down and pop that bubble. I mean, half their luck if they manage to go on and get a million followers on Instagram and, and monetize that and make some money. Yeah, that, that's okay. I mean, that's that's what our community is interested in. I'm not saying it's great and world-shattering, but, you know, people like watching TV and they like being entertained and, and if somebody can monetize that and do some good in the world, no, I have no problem with that. Um, and, and look, your role as a psych is the same as it is in the military. It's sometimes to say no to the commander. You know, they might really want somebody on the show because they think they'd, um, you know, create some sensational sort of storylines, but but at the personal cost of their well-being. And so that's where you say, yeah, look, I, I know they'd make great TV, but I don't think it's going to be a good outcome for this, for that individual. Um, and, you know, in my experience, again, mm. I can't speak for every other psychologist who works in TV, but 
if a TV production company was to say, yes, we're going to take him anyway, well, then I'd probably walk away from that contract because I don't, I don't, you know, I'm still a psychologist, I'm registered, I have an ethical requirement to look after yeah. people, you know, do you care? Uh, and, and so, you know, I'm not interested in working for somebody just for dollars and cents mm. who thinks it's fun to, yeah. to you know, damage people. And I'll make that pretty clear. I mean, one of the advantages of working in the military is you can be pretty blunt, you know, <laughs> take it or leave it. This is the way I work. Uh, and, and, yeah, most of the production companies, if not all of them, have always been really respectful of that. Well, it's it's bad drills for them yeah, to, and look, you know, to harm people. <laughs> I, I know that there's... Uh, Sometimes I think the community thinks that TV is evil and, and that they're out to sensationalise things and create drama. Uh, and look, there is some truth to that, but I've never never worked with an executive producer who is ever prepared to harm anyone. Yeah. At least knowingly. You know, sometimes they don't know what they don't know, and, and that's my job, to step in and go, mm, no, I, I'm not comfortable with that. We probably need to back off on that, on that scenario. But there's a difference too between normal human emotion and normal human behaviour and abnormal human emotion and behaviour, right? So I think maths is a great example. I've never worked on maths, just to clarify, and probably <laughs> never will. Um, but the vast majority, albeit sensational, of things you see on that is, is, is normal human emotion, right? doesn't mean you have to like it, but the, the reason why people watch it is because they're fascinated by, you know, people cracking the shits and having a tantrum and mm. um, and crying and, you know, being upset. It can make but, them feel good about their own more, much more stable life, well, perhaps, I mean, at home. Yeah. <laughs> I people, don't know. I'm not saying it's, you know, why, why TV shows are made, but, mm. but, yeah, you know, people vicariously live through through those experiences. <clears throat> but But clearly there's a level of, discomfort or distress where things become as i would call you know they become dangerous right so mm. i use a little concentric circle model that there's the bubble of comfort so everyday life is pretty comfortable for most of us right but we still have emotions right we still get upset occasionally and pissed off about things that happen at work and maybe we cry every now and then but that's that's normal it's pretty comfortable it's manageable right outside of that is discomfort this is where something bigger than normal happens and it it kind of knocks on your resilience level and you have to, whoa, you know, you might be upset for a couple, maybe, you know, a parent dies or some, something significant happens where you go, whoa, you know, I'm, I'm quite impacted by that. And it's, and it's uncomfortable, right? So you have to mm. put some time and effort into recovering from that. But you're still displaying normal human emotions, right? You're upset, you might cry, you know, might get a few sleepless nights. It's, it's normal adaptation. Outside of that is distress. So if that discomfort goes on for too long, like you have a number of adverse effects, things um, happen one after the other, or something really massive that is, you know, pretty bad happens, um, you know, major crime or a major trauma or you see somebody get killed, then of course you would be distressed by that. That's a normal human reaction again. You might see more tears or more anger, more emotion that lasts over more time but it's still within the normal remit of a human normal life to recover from, right? They don't go running off to their psychologists necessarily. I don't, I'm not a big advocate for the sort of ambulance chasing model of mental health. You know, people rely on their, their normal coping mechanisms. They talk to a family member, they talk to a friend, they take some time off work, they concentrate on their health. 
and they you know they get over that but it's distressing right and it's not pleasant to see and nobody is probably laughing and pointing anymore it's it's pretty serious mm. but co- people cope and people do and, it's, you know. uh, and then outside of that is danger so when that distress is so intense or so frequent that people can't cope with it anymore then that's when we start to step into pathology and you know Poor, poor outcomes and people sliding down slippery slopes and eroding because they, they can't they don't have the resources to deal with it anymore you know for whatever reason because they started off in a bad way or this this, this, this thing that happened was just so intense um, and so I use that model to say really as, as long as it's inside that that last zone then anything that happens on reality TV is just a normal reflection of what goes on in everyday life right we would expect people you know, if their partner cheats on them, to be pretty distressed, you know. Uh, and what does that look like? Well, it looks like what you see on maps, right? People act out and they get pissed off and they throw glasses of champagne and stuff. Mm. So, so that's why it's called reality TV, right? It's meant to be a reflection of what happens in everyday life. But that's not code for damaging people, you know. And, and that's where I draw the line and say anything that happens up until there, yeah, you need to go into this experience. And this is a brief I would give to participants. You need to go in knowing this is real, right? So if you're upset and pissed off and crying, the camera's going to keep rolling. Yeah, because that's that's what reality TV is. It's reflecting anything that's distressing or, or uncomfortable, good and bad. And there's kind of four emotional groups. There's fear, anger, sadness, and joy. You know, If it's all happy, happy, joy, joy, then it's like a cartoon for kids right no it's pretty simple and no one really wants to watch it but we we are interested in seeing people anxious or scared or sad and happy yeah Mm. but but it's not just happy happy that's that's boring tv no one really why do people gossip around the water cooler because they're interested in oh that person what's going on for them you know so it is a, a normal part of a social fabric to talk about positives and negatives and understand that's how we all tick um, which is why reality TV is fascinating. But it's got to be real. Uh, otherwise, people go, well, this is just acting. It's fake. You know, they're mm. not really upset. How boring. Uh, so, so all the best reality TV shows, and I'll use that term loosely, um, you know, ha- have a spattering of all four of those things. You want to see people when they're coping with stress. You want to see people that are telling their sad stories. You want to see people that are angry because something unfair has happened and they've overcome it. And you want to see people succeed and you know, win the race in amazing race or mm. you know, overcome adversity and work as a team. So we like to see those things. Um, and in order to do that, you've got to have a, a place, a boundary line where people know they can play in psychologically, both the participants and the production company and say, we can play in this space and the cameras aren't going to stop rolling and the psychologist is not going to run on set and hand out tissues to everybody and because you know, that ruins what they're trying to capture, which is real human experiences but it's got to be safe it's got to be safe you know we can't Mm. cause long-term harm to these people because that is unethical and certainly my registration you know says you can't let that happen that's your job so we select people to operate in that space we select people and train them um, from a production company and a cast perspective to know that's what they're going to be doing um you know sometimes i think they still don't believe you I was like, what do you mean? Oh, I'm not going to be crying on TV. I don't, you know, if, if, I'll ask them to edit it out. Mm, <laughs> no, they're not going to edit it out because that's how TV works. 
Um, and then we support them pre, during, and post, much like a military deployment. So there's a mm. pre-deployment briefing, you know, training. This is the model. This is how it's going to work. This is how you'll access the psych if you need to. Re- support either on set or on call, depending on the job. And there's a follow-up. So the return mm. to Australia psych screen when you leave the show, and there's a follow-up post-op psych screen you know, three months down the track. Yeah. And then there's an added piece with TV, which is often the delay between uh, filming and the show going to air is quite long. So mm. there's sort of a return home, get on with your everyday life. Oh, and then six months later, you're going to have to be you know, re-exposed to all that stuff. So we do extra pieces of support during and, and post the transmission or TX. Fascinating. It's called in TV. Yeah. And, but it, look, it, it's really, in my head, it's just taking that military model and plonking it into a slightly different space. And Fascinating career. <laughs> thank you for sharing your perspectives and thank you for your service. Pleasure. And, and look, good luck with the, the podcast. I'm sure there's lots of fascinating stories yeah. out there. Um, I'm really um, excited and was really um, enthusiastic when I came across um, the work that you're doing because I think, yeah, sometimes it's just a, an assumed that health personnel go and do these things, you know, and, and that, you know, our story is not as interesting or as exciting as everyone else's story. But um, yeah, my experience has been not just psychology, but, but I think all of the health services, um, you know, ha- have got some really fascinating stories to tell. Um, that, that comment on all of the service we've done you know, from, yep. from a fairly unique perspective. So, um, 100%. Super kudos to you as well. The full spectrum here, not just you know the pointy ends, but all of it because yeah. it's bloody interesting <laughs> mm. and, and we can learn from it and we should. That's right. Stories, stories are there to be told. Uh, sometimes, as I say, I don't think the, the community always wants to hear them, but... but you know the beauty of a podcast is it's recorded now, so maybe at some future point, yeah, when people are some people are ready, or the community is ready, or the politicians are ready, then they're there. Yeah, and if not, you don't like it, turn it off. No harm done. <laughs> Go and watch maths. <laughs> That's right. Go and fill your brain with something less challenging. Yeah.